Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Inside Social Work podcast. In today's episode, we talk a little bit more about mental health first aid. In the last episode, we spoke with Dr. Claire Kelly about Mental Health First Aid Australia and the programs that are being offered across the country as well as internationally. We had a little bit of a chat around the Youth Mental Health First Aid program and why that's really important and the research behind that which talks about stigma and other factors that impact on help-seeking behaviour. So if you haven't listened to that episode, I'd encourage you to have a listen to what Claire has to say. So if you want to go back to episode seven, it gives you a bit of an idea about what we're going to continue on with today. In today's episode, I'm interviewing Dr. Laura Hart, who's a senior research fellow in the Engaging Minds in Body Image and Eating Disorders research team at La Trobe University, as well as in the Centre for Mental Health at the University of Melbourne. Dr. Hart's work focuses on developing and evaluating training programs for the public to improve prevention, awareness and help seeking for mental illness. She's the lead author and investigator of the Teen Mental Health First Aid Program, which is a training course for secondary students. She's also the lead author and investigator for the Confident Body, Confident Child Program, which is to help parents prevent eating disorders and body image problems with their preschoolers. So today's interview focuses on her work with the Teen Mental Health First Aid Program. Uh, All the resources we talk about today will be in the podcast show notes, and you can also go to the Mental Health First Aid website, so that's www.mhfa.com.au and there's a whole lot of resources there for people who want to have conversations to someone around their mental health. There are some fact sheets, some evidence sort of based standards uh, as well as a list of all the different courses and that's where you can find an instructor in your area or enroll into a course that's, um, that's being advertised. Here's my interview with Dr Laura Hart. Welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast. I'm talking with Dr. Laura Hart, a postdoctoral research fellow working in the Population Mental Health Group at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Laura. Thanks so much for having me, Marie. Thanks for coming on, um, come on to talk about mental health first aid. My pleasure. So just for those who are kind of new to what mental health first aid is and in particular the teen program, did you mind giving me a bit of an overview as to what the program or what the organisation does and what your specific program that you're working on is about? Yeah, sure. So Mental Health First Aid is an organisation that was started by Tony Jorm and Betty Kitchener in Australia in the year 2000. I think you've previously spoken with Dr Claire Kelly, who was instrumental in um, developing the Youth Mental Health First Aid program, which is for adults living and working with young people to recognise symptoms of mental illness and understand supportive strategies they can use to have a conversation about with a young person about their mental health and support them to seek appropriate treatment. And as the research for the Mental Health First Aid organisation and the Mental Health First Aid training programs progressed, it became apparent that just training adults around young people who were experiencing mental illness wasn't enough to prompt them to seek help. So there was a really interesting randomised control trial that Craigie and uh, a colleague in South Australia, Dr Michael Sawyer, did where they evaluated youth mental health first aid provided to teachers in South Australian high schools. And that trial found that it increased teachers' knowledge of mental health problems in their students, it increased their confidence to talk about mental health problems among students who were showing symptoms, 
but the students didn't report any increases in their seeking help from the teachers or the teachers directly intervening with students who had mental health problems. What it what they did, what the students reported though, was that the teachers were more likely to talk about mental health in the classroom more generally. So although we were really pleased to see that teachers were talking more generally about mental health, it wasn't increasing young people's help seeking for mental health problems when they arose. And this, along with other research that the group had done with people like Marie Yap, Dr Marie Yap from Monash University, when she was working with Tony John's team, they did a large national survey of young people and their parents and they asked them, who would you seek help from if you had a problem with your mental health? And lots and lots of young people said they would talk to a friend first or a parent. And unfortunately, social workers, school counsellors and teachers were right down the list. So the combination of our knowledge about where young people like to seek help and providing training to the adults in their social circle just wasn't going to be enough for them to get well supported when symptoms of mental health problems began. So we decided that we wanted to create a program that was specific for adolescents, that met them where they were at and was appropriate to their developmental stage in years 10 to 12. And we started off with a Delphi study to ask young people who had lived experience while they were at school, what they wished they'd known, what they wished their friends had done for them. And we also surveyed youth mental health first aid instructors who were often social workers, youth workers, mental health professionals who were delivering the youth mental health first aid program on what would be appropriate to teach in schools and an appropriate level of responsibility for students aged about 16 to 18 years to take on when they're providing support to a friend. And from that study, we then did a, a number of systematic literature reviews to look at what the teen mental health first aid program should include, what was the evidence for different um, barriers to seeking help and why, how we might be able to reduce those. So. The Teen Mental Health First Aid Program was born out of the long history of doing really good, high quality research of the Mental Health First Aid Program and needing to fill a need that we had tried other ways to fulfil, but it was clear that we really needed to get to teach students directly in the schools and that just training parents and teachers around them wasn't going to be enough. Awesome. I really like how you mentioned that the appropriate level of responsibility because that's an interesting one. What what kind of came up when you were having those discussions? So you'll probably remember from speaking to Claire that the Youth Mental Health First Aid Program is a two-day training. So I think it's 14 hours in length. And the youth program covers topics like how to help someone who is suicidal, how to help someone who is psychotic, how to help someone who is developing or experiencing an eating disorder. And some of this detailed information might not be appropriate for adolescents. So Claire's research in her PhD also showed that students who were most vulnerable in their own mental health were likely to take on caring and supporting roles for their friends, but the least likely to reach out to adults 
for appropriate support. So we didn't want to we didn't want to train 16 to 18 year olds in two days worth of mental health first aid. And there is evidence from eating disorder prevention that when we provide a very long list of symptoms, you can actually create a how-to guide to develop a disorder. And I think that's probably true for how we talk about non-suicidal psychiatry as well. We needed to be careful about how much detail we were going to provide vulnerable adolescents with about the symptoms of mental illness because they are in that age group where mental illness is onset for the first time. They are coping with puberty changes, emotional changes, changes in their cognitive abilities and their um, interpersonal relationships are changing from the family of origin being the main social network to their peers being the main social network. There's so much going on and so much change happening that it's not necessarily appropriate to provide them with all the information that we would to an adult. And we needed to be really sure that we were meeting adolescents' needs but not burdening them with too much detail that would either make them likely to develop a disorder or a problem or make them likely to take on counselling or trying to be a clinician for a friend when really what we want them to think about is providing that immediate first aid response in the same way that when someone gets taught your doctor ABCD action plan for helping someone with a heart attack, you're, you're not then trained to be an ambulance officer and you're not trained to be an ER professional. And we think about mental health first aid in the same way. So if you go and get training, you're really just um, being given the information to do that Dr ABCD action plan. And for the students, we change that action plan slightly to make the emphasis on getting an reliable and appropriate adult involved rather than supporting a person until appropriate professional help is received so that adults can help them navigate the complex health systems and the complex decisions that can be made around seeking professional help. Awesome. And I guess and being a teen instructor myself, I know one of the safety um, things you put in place is that 10 to 15% of staff have to have been trained in the youth mental health first aid so that when a whole year level that well, I guess the mental health literacy increases, they then know which staff members that they've been pre-identified they can go to who then have that extra knowledge of, okay, this is how I can help you navigate the system, these are the referral pathways. Was that kind of part of that seeking support, like that next step? Was that kind of integrated into the model? Absolutely. We found that when young people who are establishing health behaviours and help-seeking processes have negative experiences of reaching out to adults and they feel like they're being rejected or stigmatised or not particularly well supported with mental health problems, they're not as likely again in the future to reach out for help. So if we're increasing help-seeking among young people, if we're encouraging them to seek early intervention and to get their symptoms assessed or to seek support just for um, using self-help strategies to help manage their mental health, if they reach out and have a negative experience, then they're not likely to do that in the future. So it was incredibly important for us to make sure that if we're increasing their ability to reach out, 
then it's going to be a positive experience. And having everyone use the same language and have the action plans in place and having adults in their sphere feel confident when a young person comes to them and says, oh, look, I'm really struggling with you know, how I'm feeling or I think I might have anxiety and then getting appropriate referrals is was really important. So although the schools have often asked us why do we need to put our teachers through two days of professional development training, it's so important to have the support in the staff there when young people do come looking for support. Yeah, awesome. So for those who... Uh, haven't done the course or are looking to do the course and someone, let's say, does approach them to sort of say, I feel like, um, you know, I'm worried about a friend or they disclose something themselves, what would be one of the kind of the key take-home messages that they can do as someone receiving that information? So if they don't feel like they've got the knowledge to kind of scaffold that conversation more in depth, what are some kind of tips on how to how to handle that if it kind of pops up for them? Great question. So for young people, when we were doing our literature review around what were the barriers to help seeking, a huge one was concerns about confidentiality. So when is it if your friend that you're worried about says, I don't want you to tell anyone, I don't want to worry anyone, I don't want to get in trouble, at what point does the young person break that confidentiality and go to an adult even when their friend doesn't want them to? And we spend quite a lot of time in the course trying to break that down and we talk about the difference between a mental health crisis when there's a risk of harm to any person involved in the situation and that harm may be from drugs or alcohol, from potential violence, from bullying or abuse or from self-harm. So if there's a crisis situation, there needs to be an adult involved to de-escalate and that's a time when we would always encourage young people to get a reliable and trusted adult involved and encourage their friend to consent. But if they don't consent, to do it anyway because keeping your friend safe is more important than um, keeping that trust in the friendship. And we do have lots of young people who have said their friends sought help on, you know, without their consent but now that they're better and they got the support they needed, they were really glad that they did that. For a young adult who's, um, you know, maybe recently graduated and working in schools and they have a student come up to them and say, um, you know, that they're having troubles at home or having troubles with their mental health, I would say that it's important to try and listen non-judgmentally to understand what the context is that the student is struggling with and then to look at who the appropriate supports are that you can plug that student into and make sure that you're following your school's processes for reporting up the line as well as trying to keep the young person consenting at every step of the way. So can you get them linked in with the school counsellor or can you get them having a supported conversation with the assistant principal who tends to be head of wellbeing or is there another instructor or mental health professional that's known to the school that you can get them linked into? And for people who haven't yet done mental health first aid training, on the mental health first aid website, mhfa.com.au, there's a whole range of guidelines that are free and in the public domain that are research evidence-based that list under different scenarios the best way to approach a person about a mental health concern. So if you think 
the young person might be struggling with an eating disorder or with substance misuse or with anxiety or after trauma. All these different scenarios have guidelines that are accessible by the public and very backed up by research evidence. I wanted to throw something. So one of the things I suggest to people, and I want you to tell me what you think of this, is I encourage them, like if they're a little bit rusty or if they've been caught off guard, that it's completely safe, it's completely okay to say, well, thanks for telling me. I'm not sure I'm the right person, but I can go with you to find them. So you don't have to have the answer and it's completely okay to say, that sounds really tough or you, you've thrown me. I'm, I'm sorry, I never expected that. I can't, don't know if, I, if I'm the right person and I'll help you find it or let's look together or do you want to wait a minute? Like actually saying that if you don't know. Thanks for bringing that up because we often say in the program that the best first aid you can do if you don't know how to support someone is to say that and help them find the next person who will be the best support. And we do in our research and our feedback from students ask, have you had an experience providing first aid? And often they'll say, oh, maybe. And then when we dig in a little bit deeper and ask what happened, they'll say, oh, I know one of my friends had a problem, but I didn't know them that well. So I told a friend who was closer to them and then they were the one who supported them to get help. And we think that's the best first aid that can possibly happen. You're not always going to be the most appropriate person to support someone, but linking the person you're worried about in with the appropriate supports is great first aid. Awesome. So my advice was good on that one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> I think, we, you know, sometimes parents, teachers, even clinicians might feel the need to have all the answers. And sometimes, I mean, even in my private practice, it could be something that I just know is not my specialty. And I might say, look, you know, thank you for disclosing that or trusting me with that information. That's just not my strength or skills and expertise. Is it okay if I refer you elsewhere or, you know, especially if it's not a crisis, you've got a bit of time to say, let's work with finding an appropriate person to pass you on. And I think... I think that fits better, I guess, with my values of getting the right person for the for the job, I guess. And I think that's one of the strengths of mental health first aid that although in the action plan we talk we talk about appropriate professional help, we also talk about encouraging other supports. So these might be self-help strategies, these might be linking in with friends, they might be seeking online counselling or via telephone helplines that are free 24-7. And depending on the person's context, depending on their pre-existing mental health problems, where they've been seeking help in the past, whether this is a brand new problem or a recurring one, who they need to reach out to and who's going to be the most appropriate support network is really difficult to judge and it's most definitely not a one-size-fits-all. So in our program, we ask students to list which adults they would feel comfortable in their life reaching out to about their own mental health problems and then if a friend came to them with a problem, who would they feel comfortable reaching out to? And the more we can encourage them to visualise and really think about who would I want to speak to about these difficult issues or my most personal problems, who would I be okay with talking to, the more likely they are to put that in action when they need it to. And I would say to parents, one of the most valuable things you could do to protect your adolescents' mental health is not necessarily to say, I'm always here from you, you can talk to me about anything, 
but to encourage your adolescent to think about all the different adults in their life that they can go to and sometimes that may be without the parents knowledge so are there aunts or uncles or grandparents or family friends who the parents trust to be a confidant for the adolescent who if the adolescent's worried about getting in trouble but it's a big deal and they want to tell someone they could reach out to an adult and get appropriate and reliable support and I think having adults and parents that plug young people into a range of supports is the best way to support someone because you just never know what they're going to be confronted with and what issues they might be struggling with and we hope that parents are always going to be the best source of support but maybe sometimes they're not and giving young people more options makes them more likely to reach out and get what they need. I like what you said about getting in trouble because I'm when I was a school counsellor I had a lot of students they were really worried like oh my parents are going to get angry at me for sharing this and maybe in a, in a very few uh, few families that might have been the case where it was you know, this is a private issue we don't talk about it but for many once they found out that their their child was struggling they were so relieved to kind of be included in that and it was the, the young person often found just having someone to scaffold that conversation and like you said maintaining that confidentiality along the way and saying look I think this is time that we should tell mum or dad or guardian or grandparents or whoever's involved with that person you know let, let's let them know that things are a bit tough for you they don't have to know everything they don't need to know all we've, the things we've talked about but just saying you know things are a bit tough and you're feeling a bit overwhelmed they can then help support you or they might be able to give you a bit of a break from you know, nagging or homework or instead of saying you're not concentrating and why aren't you studying, they might then understand that that's a symptom of you just feeling overwhelmed and stressed or kind of a bit of burnout, that you're not unmotivated, you're just overwhelmed and often it can help resolve some of the conflict that was happening because parents are like, I don't know, why aren't they talking to me? They're just disengaged when that young person might have been completely consumed with something happening at school or in their, in their personal life um, and the symptom would often get them in trouble. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It, there are times when adolescent symptoms are misperceived as being difficult behaviours and I think often, you know, media and society generally gives adolescents a hard time for being moody and difficult, which is not the best. But I think also um, when you're experiencing mental health problems, if you're experiencing the world as pretty bleak, if you're feeling fairly isolated, if your mood is fairly low, then you're probably likely to think, oh, my parents are not going to react very well to this and it, and there can be a little bit of catastrophic thinking in there or some negative thinking and that having an external adult involved who can, just as you say, scaffold the conversation or do a bit of reality checking or just a bit of exploring and wondering, so how do you think your parents will react and why do you think they'll react like that and have you tried in the past to speak to them about issues that are similar to this and how did they react um, may help young people move from I definitely don't want to get them involved to yeah I guess we could try talking about it a little bit to begin with and then see where it takes us so I do think the message of um, teen mental health being getting teen mental health first aid being get a responsible and trusted adult involved is that we're not prescribing who the adult needs to be and we're hoping often that reliable adult will get the parents involved if it's safe and appropriate but it doesn't necessarily have to be parents and and could be anyone that the young person feels comfortable with. What are some of the challenges in 
increasing mental health literacy, but then also making making it hard for people to understand what's kind of normal stress and anxiety and what's problematic. So sometimes too little information can almost be unhelpful, but then, like you said, too much, like the full two-day course is just maybe not age-appropriate and for that level of responsibility. So how do we normalise? It's completely normal to be stressed before exams. Having butterflies in your stomach and feeling anxious doesn't mean you have an anxiety disorder. That's completely normal and it's completely okay and, in fact, very necessary to when is it problematic. So how do we, how do we educate young people around that difference of it's completely fine to be worried about this, but this is when it's kind of problematic? I think there's, there's a simple answer and there's a <laughs> complex answer to that. <laughs> the simple answer is that we define symptoms of mental health problems as when there's a change to the young person's thoughts, feelings or behaviours that's interfering with their functioning and doesn't go away quickly. So if you feel really anxious about your exam, you do your exam and then you feel better, that's not a symptom of a mental health problem. But if you're feeling anxious for three months leading up to the exam and you sit it and then you're absolutely convinced that it's a terrible mark and that you're going to fail and you feel horrific for months until you get your marks and then it's a reasonable mark but you catastrophize about what that means for your VCE or for your scores, then that's probably starting to look a little bit more like a mental health problem. So for us it's about the definition of impacting on functioning and how long-lasting it is. And they're really important messages that we present in the classroom so that young people can try and distinguish a little bit between normal stressful events and responses to their lives and mental health problems that or symptoms that might be worth checking out. And we encourage young people to have a chat with an adult just to check symptoms out to see whether or not an adult thinks it's worth looking at further rather than erring on the side of caution and going, oh, we'll just wait a little bit longer and see if this gets any worse because it's always better to try and support people to make changes that are good for their mental health early in the course of their symptoms rather than leaving it too late. The more complex answer is that I'd say it's really hard as a society for us to find that really good balance between having mental health literacy, very high mental health literacy, and over pathologizing our mental health. And I'm, I don't have the answer to that, and I'm not quite sure most mental health professionals do either. Obviously, the mental health field relies heavily on the definition of impacting functioning. So your symptoms have to get in the way of your ability to work or study or have relationships that are positive. But I think there are grey areas around grief and trauma and stress where individuals can experience symptoms for long periods of time, but what is a mental health symptom versus what is a a normal reaction to a difficult context is a really complex area. One of the things that comes to mind is there's been, I mean, I've noticed just my time in the field, there's been a little bit of a shift away from very sort of pathologising and diagnostic and then trying to change, you know, recover from anxiety or depression using something like 
strictly CBT and medication to now, you know, looking at kind of the emergence of ACT and a few other therapies where it's like anxiety is just kind of like my shadow and it can consume me sometimes. I might never get rid of it, but I'm just going to kind of give it a backseat so that it's not backseat driving, but it might be there and kind of looking at that psychoeducation a bit of there might be times where I'm really overwhelmed and it really impacts my functioning and then that's when I need a full-blown suite of support and there are other times where I might just be slightly more anxious and I'm going to get a little bit nervous about things and that's okay. I don't have to avoid it. I can kind of sit with that discomfort. Is that something you're noticing people are kind of starting to adopt a little bit more? It doesn't have to be an all or nothing. It can kind of, it's you know, I can live with almost like maybe like a chronic illness. It doesn't always have to be really acute. I can just kind of, like with diabetes, you can live a full healthy life and run marathons and ultra marathons and do things healthy people don't do. No way. Yeah, I think for people who have chronic mental health problems, that's a really useful headspace to be in rather than trying to reality check and challenge the negative thoughts and then get really frustrated when you have a recurrence of the symptoms because you thought you beat it and now it's back and now you've got to do all your CBT strategies again. And um, I do think that idea that this is something that is just part of the way my brain talks to me and it's just part of my internal experience and I don't have to be pushed or shoved by it, I can just acknowledge it's there and get on with my life. I do think that's a really important mindset to have. I would say, though, probably for young people, I think it's important for them to feel like one experience of mental illness doesn't mean they're going to experience for the rest of their life or that those negative thoughts or symptoms are necessarily going to be their shadow or there for a really long period of time. So I do think mindfulness and being accepting of our internal dialogue is incredibly important but I also am kind of wedded to that you know CBT challenging of reality where we don't have to feel negative about the world all the time and and that doing some reality checking can be really useful and just because we've experienced a mental health problem once doesn't mean that we're going to always have that problem or that we will experience it again in the future. Awesome. That's such a good message for hope there. I hope so. <laughs> do, you think, do you think mental health problems are getting worse or is it just we're talking about it more? Because this gets asked of me a lot in training and yeah. people will like to point the figure of is it TV, is it social media, is, you know, oh, we're not, it's not getting worse, we're just talking about it more. And, you know, there's kind of a collective of responses to that. But what's sort of what's happening in the research and what are you noticing and seeing? Well, it's, again, there's a simple answer and a complex answer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Tony John's done a bit of work around this and there seems to be, I guess the the simple answer is we don't know would be my, my immediate response. It's really hard to say. People are talking about it more. But the way we've measured mental health problems in youth and in adults has changed over time. So it's really difficult for us to compare apples with oranges and say, yep, we definitely have more apples because they're not, we're not doing comparisons that are exactly the same because our measures have changed. Mm. And the way we've asked people um, 
and the ages that they've been at have changed over time. So statistically and from a research point of view, it's a very complex question to answer. I would say that we're definitely talking about mental health more. Mental health literacy has risen on a national level and that's a wonderful thing. We're also seeking more treatment. So with the implementation of Medicare funding for psychological services and mental health treatments, there's definitely more knowledge in the community about where to seek help and how to seek help and treatments are being taken up more. But when we look at national measures of our mental health, they don't seem to be shifting. So despite us getting more treatment and talking about it more, we don't seem to be happier. But whether or not that means there's more mental illness than there was before, or whether that means the pressures, there are new pressures that are coming up behind old pressures that seem to be solved. And certainly for young people, we find it hard to really understand the impact of social media and technology and traditional news media and images and body dissatisfaction and drug misuse and homelessness. It's, it's, it's very difficult to quantify those sorts of pressures on young people. And I do think... I do think there may well be cohort effects where at different points in history, different groups of young people have had more or less mental illness and we may be seeing young people either exposed to more pressures or there may be cohort effects. It's so difficult to say and I'm, I'm sorry I can't what? give you a nice I'm... clean answer for you to give in training and say, yep, we definitely know it's going up or no, it's definitely not. I'd, I'd say the best answer is, we don't know and it's very complex. I usually, um, like that's really interesting because I'll, I'll kind of go with the, I don't know for sort of diagnosable mental illness but I can definitely say there's a lot of evidence coming out that says psychological distress is kind of increasing and just that collective, you know, especially in some communities that have experienced, you know, natural disasters and the effects of war or famine or poverty, we know that there's some collective distress in those communities so perhaps they don't meet the threshold in that kind of impact on functioning but maybe there's higher levels of distress and then we hear about it more and then that can feed some of our own distress because we're exposed to you know we've almost cherry-picked the worst stories of the world and we can get them almost instantly um and I think that comparison on social media can increase some of that dissatisfaction so it's almost like it gives it a bit of a megaphone so it's hard to know if they're meeting criteria for diagnosis or we're just, we're a little bit more distressed. It maybe takes us a little bit longer to sift through what the reality of a situation is. And then we give the negative things happening a bit of a megaphone. So almost disproportionately represented. I think there's certainly some of that. And Professor Martin Seligman, who's considered the founding father of positive psychology, talks about as a global community, we are healthier and have a higher quality of life than we ever had before. And isn't it amazing that we have a much higher life expectancy, that our healthcare is at a higher quality, that our level of um, living and, and satisfaction in life seems to be high. But as you point to, there's some underlying psychological distress that doesn't seem to be alleviated despite all these amazing advancements that we've made as humans in the last 300 years. So it's a difficult thing to put your finger on and and explain 
what's happening and why it's happening. I think both are true that we are getting happier and healthier, but our mental health is not yet at the place where we can say we are all thriving and that as a, a society and a global community, we're all very mentally healthy. I don't think we're there yet. It makes me think of there's an author who's written that book, um, Sapiens and 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, um, Yuval Noah Harari. And he's like, you know, he was saying sort of a similar thing, like never in history have things been so good. They're the best they've ever been, healthcare, education, but they could get much worse. But yes. we seem to be, meant, you know, just how do we grapple with that? Like they're better than they've ever been. Doesn't mean they're going to stay that way. They could get much worse or they could get much better. Um, but globally, you know, what does that mean for our kind of well-being and, and how we interpret things? And it's really interesting. I guess it's a conversation for another time. <laughs> so just to, you know, just to wrap up, um, I guess on a more personal note, you've been immersed in a lot of the data and you probably see more of the pointy end, the worst case scenarios or any kind of crisis that emerge across different schools. You know, how do you, how do you deal with that emotional toll of being immersed in the data and hearing kind of the, the sad stories of mental illness and mental distress and even working through the Delphi study where I'm sure you would have heard people's stories of how the system didn't work for them or what they wish they had. And I imagine that could be quite distressing at times. But what are some tips or some things that you wouldn't mind sharing about how you've taken care of yourself and how other people in similar fields where they're kind of maybe receiving a lot of that from the people that they're supporting, um, what things they can adopt? Yeah, that's it's interesting because I do mm-hmm. definitely when you start talking about mental health and mental health in young people, you do get approached with stories and people reaching out with their distress. So I do hear a lot of distressing stories, but I'd also like to say that people generally respond to the program in quite an uplifting way and a positive way, talking about the fact that it's needed and we should have had it a long time ago and thank goodness we're providing strategies in schools for young people and adults to appropriately support young people with mental health problems. So it's always um, it's always both sides of the coin are represented at once in my experience that people are, do have difficult experiences but they also are uplifted by the fact that there are things being put in place. So I guess in my experience trying to scaffold that distress with appropriate responses has been useful but Um, I also must confess that my husband is a clinical psychologist and very supportive of the work that I do and taking time away from the work and making sure I have meaningful, enjoyable activities that are right away from um, the work that I do is incredibly important, but also walking the walk as well as talking the talk. So if I'm out there talking to people about the importance of mental health first aid and picking up symptoms early and doing self-care well then I have to be doing that too so definitely um, building in exercise building in quiet time trying not to use coping strategies that are maladaptive like drinking too much Um, so it's it's you do have to be I guess one of the benefits of working in this space is that you're constantly reminded of all the ways in which you could be supporting your mental health and and trying to, I guess, swallow your own medicine, I would say, is a good good way of doing that. Do you have a favourite tip, so especially um, on these darker, colder winter days? 
um, it's very easy to just want to curl up and binge watch something on TV, which can be fine. But, you know, do you you have a favourite strategy that you think this is kind of what helps pull me out of that kind of lull? Well, it's funny you mentioned that actually because because I find my work so, you know, in, in research so demanding mentally. I do I do love a good network a good Netflix weekend, I have to say. Although with two young kids I'm limited with how much we can, you know, sit around and watch. There was an article I read just this morning about the mental health benefits of catching up with friends and I'd say sitting around the table with some good tucker and having a laugh is just, you know, the best medicine because it leaves you feeling connected, it leaves you feeling uplifted and it leaves you feeling loved and cared for for a long time after you've actually left the social event. So, And when you're feeling negative or isolated, it's hard to push yourself over the line to get out there and do that, but I never regret doing it, even though it's sometimes hard to get out the door. It's always a rewarding experience when I've done it. So I'd say connecting with friends and having a good laugh is definitely the best medicine for me. Awesome. That's a really good tip. Thank you so much for sharing. Do you have any um, parting words of wisdom or anything you kind of want to share that's up and coming or about the program before we kind of wrap up? Um, I just say thank you so much for all the hard work that you do, Marie, and social work um, professionals around Australia. Incredible work, incredible people, and I'm really grateful for what you do. So take care of yourself and keep on trucking. Great. Thanks so much, Laura. Thanks, Marie. I really want to thank Laura for taking the time to talk about the Team Mental Health Program. I think it's a really good program for people to be aware of, especially those who work in schools or work closely with schools. So for those who want to find out a little bit more about it, you can head over to the Mental Health First Aid website and there'll be a link to that in the show notes. And I think it's really also really important to see the sort of self-care strategies that other professionals incorporate. So everybody that I've interviewed so far have really stressed the importance of self-care and things that they do to keep mentally well. So after a busy day of work or after hearing distressing or emotional stories from clients or from friends or from family, everyone has something that they go to to help keep them to help keep them well. So Laura talked a lot about connecting with people as well as the importance of exercising and really acknowledges how hard that can be with two little children and I think that's something to keep in mind is what do you need for yourself Uh, what you can do to keep well Uh, what are your self-care strategies because we can't do this work if we're burnt out and it's it's hard it can take a lot of energy a lot of mental energy as well and we really want to practice what we preach thanks for listening in and uh, we'll tune in next time for another episode thank you